and welcome to Into the Wild, the podcast that brings you wildlife facts, conservation updates and nature stories from the professionals to you. This episode of Into the Wild is brought to you by Leica Sport Optics. As the world opens up and we're able to venture forth and go and explore again, it's essential that we have the kit we need so we don't leave nature hotspots disappointed. With that in mind, I cannot recommend Leica Sport Optics enough. Leica not only have a great range of optics for a wide range of uses, but they also offer finance plans to help people like me that would rather pay bit by bit. I'm currently using the Leica HD Ultravids, and now I can clearly see all the birds that I am also still unable to identify. Read more about Leica's range via their website in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild. I am your host Ryan Dalton. Thanks for clicking play on the pod. Summer was good, wasn't it? Did you enjoy summer? I think it lasted a good 27 and a half minutes this year in England. It was lovely. Personally, I took a nap and missed it. I've now been enjoying autumn. There, There's literally leaves falling from the trees already in London. And I'm wearing jumpers and putting the heat in on. What is going on? A disclaimer, I'm not putting the heat in on. I just double up the old knitted wear. Um, but anyway, it has been a lovely week. I want to start start the podcast. <laughs> can't talk today. <laughs> I want to start the podcast by saying a huge thank you and a shout out to Into the Wild listener Andy, who um, a couple of weeks ago contacted me and sent me like an absolute boss sent me two complimentary tickets to go and see the Lion King in London's West End because Andy works as a flight conductor for the show, which is the best job I've ever heard of. And the other night, uh, myself and Christina went to go and watch it and we were taken back to our youth singing along to the Disney classics, enjoying the wonderful story, the wonderful show. Um, It was really, really enjoyable and I loved it very, very much. A big shout out to Andy. Thank you for picking up our mood this week it was something we needed it was nice to go and do something a little bit normal but on to today's show well we we better to start where we always start we need some positivity don't we because the world is at the moment i'm not gonna lie these positive conservational stories are getting harder and harder to find and i don't know what that says about the state of the world but i did manage to find four good stories for 60 second nature news so are you ready for this Let's give it a go. 60 second nature news. Are we ready? Probably not. Deep breath. Let's go. Locally extinct bandicoots have returned to an Australian national park in New South Wales after more than 100 years absence. The nationally threatened species known by local Aboriginal people as Taupero once ranged across inland Australia, including the area now managed by Sturt National Park. The small native marsupials became extinct in the region after ecosystems changed caused by rabbits and predation by feral cats and foxes. Now, a founding population of Taupero have been reintroduced to the area by the team at Wild Deserts. The bearded vulture reintroduction project in Andalusia has been a huge success for chicks bred in captivity and captive bred bearded vultures released into the wild and young that have fledged in the wild this year. In early 2021, the reintroduction team in Andalusia rejoiced when the Bearded Vulture Captive Breeding Centre in Gardalentin broke a worldwide record by welcoming a total of 10 chicks. No other facility in the world has managed to produce such a high number of the chicks in a single breeding season. 
In addition to this brilliant outcome, 2021 also marked another successful Bearded Vulture release season in Andalusia. The Junta de Andalusia and the Vulture Conservation Foundation released a total of eight young captive-bred bearded vultures into the wild as part of the efforts to reintroduce the species into the region. Three new orchid species from the evergreen montane forests and shrublands of the Ecuadorian Andes have been described by scientists. Two of the new orchids have been assessed as critically endangered according to the IUCN Red List criteria. All three of the new to science species are in the genus Lepenthes, an extremely diverse group that boasts an estimated 1,100 species. Researchers found the flowers while studying plant-hummingbird interactions in the cloud forest with different levels of disturbance. Ecuador is one of the most biodiverse places on Earth where the interactions between many species have not yet been studied. And finally, the government, DEFRA, have released a public consultation to gain views on their cautious approach to the release and management of beavers in the wild in England. It shows great signs that careful planning will ensure that the continued release of these iconic and important animals back into the British ecosystems will be strong and successful. You can read more about this via the Beaver Trust website and also take part in the consultation yourself. And that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. There we go. That was 60 Second Nature News. Four more positive stories from around the world to make you lot feel a bit positive about the state of the planet. On that note, these are getting quite hard to find recently. I don't know what everyone's doing or not doing, but the stories are getting hard to find. So I would like to say to all of you listeners of Into the Wild, if you have any news at all, it could be something you've done in your local area it could be something you're volunteering to do with a local conservation group it could be something bigger scale if you've read about it heard about it it could be absolutely anything to do with wildlife conservation that's been positive and also is factually correct then please send them into into the wild pod at gmail.com and i'll mention them on the show and also give you a shout out as well but anyway on to today's episode which is about basking sharks and conservation conflicts. What does that mean? Well, within the wildlife and conservation sector, there lies many chats to be had and often many debates as well. And we kind of see these debates take place on social media, or they sometimes have their very own campaigns. When this happens, it can create a match of two sides, often becoming more and more divisive, where both sides battle whilst probably forgetting their original point and argument. Someone that knows a lot about this is conservation scientist, ambassador for Save Our Seas Foundation, and also someone that is currently doing a PhD on conservation conflicts, Isla Hodgson. Whilst I had Isla on the show, I had to talk to her about a passion in her life that is basking sharks. Isla has spent many hours in the presence of these gentle giants and her passion for them came across wonderfully, but then we swiftly moved on to our main topic of chat, which was conservation conflicts. A chat looking at how human behaviour within debates can often slow down the success or even reaching the end goal altogether, and where this is commonly seen in the UK. So enough of my mouth, ladies and gentlemen, and enjoy this episode, which is titled Basking Sharks and Conservation Conflicts with Isla Hodgson. As we record this, what's the date today? What's the date, Isla? The date is the 17th of August. I had to check. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you did. I saw your eyes look at the bottom left <laughs> right corner of your screen. Um, as I record this on the 17th of August, thank you, Isla. Um, this is the first time I've recorded an episode in so... Well, it feels like forever. I don't, 
it must be seven or eight weeks. It must be about that since I've recorded one. So to the listeners, if this um, sounds a bit sketchy, <laughs> I do apologise. Um, but I've got a beer in hand because it's five o'clock. Um, so we should be grand. Um, and then I've just got to welcome my guest. Uh, today, I, I'm really excited about this episode because I like to talk about conflicting topics. I think it's very interesting. And talking about these topics is a way of building bridges. So... Today we're going to be talking about like conservational conflicts. Oh, that Whoa. sounds very interesting. But we're also going to be talking a bit about basking sharks because the guest I've got on, I could not let her get away without chatting a bit about these wonderful marine creatures. <laughs> My guest today, the wonderful Isla, Ho- uh, is it Hodgson? Is that how I pronounce it? It's Hodgson. Yeah, sorry. It's a really awkward, Hodgson. it's a really awkward last name to say. And so is the first name. Um, so try try being a Geordie with a name like Isla. No one knows how to pronounce it. So you're absolutely grand. Isla I was fine with. You call me Dr. Isla if you want, because I, I did a PhD just to be called yes. doctor. So uh, I'm going to milk that for all Dr. it's worth. Dr. Isla then. Yeah, there you go. As <laughs> <laughs> you should. Absolutely as you should. Um, Isla, it's so lovely to have you on the show. I've um, been following you on Instagram I couldn't. I couldn't even remember how for how long. Because of your content for sharks, uh, or specifically basking sharks, some the footage you share is incredible. Um, so it's so nice to be able to get to talk to you briefly about that today before we move on to our main topic. But before we do, the most important question of the episode to bring people up to speed: Do you want to tell everyone who you are and what is it you do? Well, firstly, thank you for having me. Um, I also wish I had a beer. I should have brought that one along. Um, <laughs> But but no, yeah, so I am uh, Dr. Isla Hodgson. Um, I, I can't believe I just called myself doctor there. I don't, I, I was joking, by Do the way. Do it, be proud of it. <laughs> I was joking. But yeah, I wear a couple of different hats. I almost feel like I lead a bit of a double life. So on the one hand, I'm a scientist. That's my main job. Um, I'm a research scientist. Um, I work in a slightly, well, a very niche field, really, as all scientists do. But I moved from marine science and started to kind of study our own species. So what I specialise in now is something called conservation conflicts, which we're going to talk about a lot later on. But basically, I kind of study human interaction in the context of conservation and sort of why we're so weird and why we react to things in certain ways and um, so that's kind of where I am now I've kind of gone into the the dark side of conservation social and political science <laughs> but on the other side of the coin um I also literally keep my toes in the water of marine science and conservation with the work that I do sort of mainly around sharks so I'm a guide for Baskin Sharks Scotland so I live on the west coast of Scotland and I'm lucky enough to sort of go out every summer and go and take people swimming with Baskin Sharks which is amazing sounds amazing yeah yeah it's a cool job it's a really cool job it doesn't actually feel like work most of the time yeah and I'm also a scuba diver up here and um, I'm an ambassador for the Save Our Seas Foundation as well I kind of dabble in science communication um, and I do a podcast for them called Whole Teeth yeah so a, a big mixture of things really so I've got the marine side and then I've got the conflict side as well and the two believe it or not the two do mix every so often but yeah so that, that they're my two main roles really and I've got to ask you as you said you now run and host the podcast for Save Our Seas how are you finding that um it's yeah so it's brand new 
Um, so I'm sorry to talk about another podcast on your podcast. Uh, advertise no, my do own it. Podcast. I'm always intrigued. No, yeah, the podcast is really fun. So basically, it's like a dream come true. Uh, so it's it's all about sharks. Um, and basically, we get sent a question every single episode. And we gather together a panel of experts in shark science and conservation to answer the question. So it's all about sort of debunking myths and communicating facts about sharks. Mm. And so basically, I just get to nerd out with some of the best in the business um so it's kind of it's it's it's, it's great it's, isn't it yeah it's awesome it's like a, it's a proper dream come true but yeah it's an interesting process so I've never done a podcast before so it's been a bit of a definitely a bit of a learning curve and um, we were talking earlier about I fully understand audio going wrong dogs barking in the background <laughs> um so I've, I've got a dog called Haggis um who seems to have like a intuitive sense for whenever I'm going to start a podcast and decides he's going to go on like some sort of rampage and, and bark all around the house Amazing. so yeah fully understand that <laughs> have you noticed actually what do you know what Riley does this is incredible right so Riley she's not in the room now but if she was in the room I'll be talking and we'll be talking for an hour and as soon as I say all right lovely to have you on take care bye she gets up stretches and come over to say hello she knows oh. the end oh. and I was like that's I mean that just shows how many times I've recorded an episode <laughs> with her in the room. Yeah. <laughs> that it's like, you know, she's started to learn that noise, which I thought was amazing. That is awesome. So Haggis might learn that. I hope so. Currently he's learnt hello and he's learnt that hello necessarily means that now is time to create chaos, um, unfortunately. So it's not, <laughs> not as nice. Haggis has learnt the, the, wrong, the wrong end of the podcast. He's he learnt the wrong learn end, the end of the podcast. He has indeed. Um, and he is just, <laughs> He's just obsessed with everything outside. So anytime a goose flies past, anytime a horse goes past, anytime there's a van in the vicinity, he feels the need to bark and alert us to everything. So you might hear him through this podcast, but um, yeah. I now hope I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, so asking a bit more specifically, you know, we all work with wildlife and nature in, you know, whenever people are on this podcast, we all have the similar interests, but I guess we all have, it means something different to us. Like it could mean a number of things, but for you, what does wildlife and nature mean to you? Yeah, you're completely right. Like wildlife means multiple different things to me and it means different things depending on the day or like, you know, it changes hourly. But I think the main thing that wildlife and nature kind of means to me is just sheer joy you know, sheer childlike joy. So I have a lot of um, a lot of roles where, you know, I take people out to see wildlife as a guide or I'm a scuba instructor and a lot of what we do to calm people down under the water when they're kind of freaking out is to find wildlife for them and like show it to them and stuff. The thing that I love the most about it is that it doesn't matter who that person is. It doesn't matter what their background is. It doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are. As soon as you show them something or you tell them a really interesting fact you know nature is so weird and wonderful it just really sparks that kind of joy in people that curiosity and mm. you see their face completely light up so I've taken people in the water before um, I mean I'm talking very much on a marine sense here but the same applies to terrestrial wildlife as well like I'm sure yeah you know people that have shown people birdsong for the first time or talked about if you're really passionate about something and you can communicate that um, and you see that person like really take that on board. So in the in the marine sphere, you can take people who have never snorkeled before and take them above a kelp forest and literally bring them up a sea urchin and show them the bottom of it. And like underneath a sea urchin is something called the Aristotle's lantern, which is actually its mouth. 
like a little beak that mm. sticks out the bottom and that's what it uses to scrape its food off the rock basically <laughs> and it is the weirdest looking thing ever and um, it looks like something from like a sci-fi film and you just see this person's face be like oh that's so cool and like um yeah it's just amazing so for me it really signifies that kind of sheer joy and I've seen you know these big grown men on the Baskin shark boats with all this bravado and you know kind of pretending that they're just there to get the shot and you know be seem like they're not that interested and then you can turn around to them Mm. and as soon as they get a massive Baskin shark in front of them they revert back to being like four years old (laughs) and they're like so (laughs) amazed by it so so yeah I guess that's what it means for me and you know it, it brings me so much joy as well like it doesn't matter that I've worked with wildlife for for quite a long time now like it still amazes me and there's still so much to yeah to learn and to be curious about it's just awesome yeah it is that kind of that's what nature and wildlife is isn't it it's sharing those moments with people or something that you may might already know or are passionate about seeing that passion and excitement go into someone else that's what it means to me as well that's why i love it so much because you can just connect with so many people about it um and share those kind of discoveries together is is so much fun no i was just gonna say like even even on social media that just reminds me of like a twitter thread i think it was between i think you were involved um there were quite a few people involved in this twitter feed and they were like debating whether marine mammals were better than birds or something um and like, <laughs> that sounds like a twitter thread i'd be in yeah 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 and then someone said something very derogatory about fish and so I obviously was like, I'm going to have to jump in here and and, and defend yeah. sharks with my life and deep sea fish and all these weird things. And then the thing that actually won the argument in the end was nudibranchs, so sea slugs. So that's my that's my like yeah. gold card. So if anyone's kind of like being a bit sort of iffy about marine life, I'm like, nudibranchs. And then they look at them. So nudibranchs are sea slugs, by the way, but they're not like the slugs you get in your back garden. Nudibranchs. Nudibranchs. Um, yeah, so they're, they're like... Um, little they look like little pokemon so basically you can get them in like crazy colors crazy shapes uh you know all different sizes and there's so many of them around the world yeah people google nudibranchs they they will blow your mind um amazing yeah, and that should get out of jail free card <laughs> that is yeah so if anyone's because they're just so cool um sorry i'm going off on a complete tangent yeah. about nudibranchs now but yeah so the, <laughs> the name means naked gill so their gills are actually like like out in the open on their back um oh that uh, makes sense yeah yeah and they look like little aliens they've got these two little things at the front of their head like called rhinophores some of them have like crazy different colored spines like a hedgehog some of them are covered in spots some of them have like loads of frills all around them like they're they're crazy looking and they basically like live on all different kinds of sea vegetation or corals and Mm. sponges and kelp and some of them can actually like recycle the toxins within things like sponges or anemones and like use them for their for their own defenses yeah they're crazy but they're so cool so they're they're my kind of like if people are like eh, marine life is boring i'm like nudibranchs <laughs> <laughs> nudibranchs now get out yeah um <laughs> mic drop <laughs> <laughs> with with marine life like you said like sharks I've, i feel like for you again correct me if i'm wrong but uh you know a very strong passion for yourself and yeah. specifically basking sharks because of where you are <laughs> You understandably love them, but when did you? When did that start? I, I do love them. Um, I personally think they're really cute. Um, but yeah, so the Baskin mm-hmm. shark came into my life in about 2018. Um, so actually, relatively mm. recently. So, like I said, I've 
I've got a background in marine science, so I did um, a master's degree in, in marine science, but I actually used to special in marine mammal habitat use, so specifically the minke whale, who's like a resident species of whale to UK waters. Um, and that was before I moved into conflicts. And then I did my PhD and then I went straight into a consultancy for WWF, which was quite intense. And so when I came out of that consultancy, I was kind of like, I do not want to sit at a desk anymore. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm done with doing yeah. that. And I was looking basically for any sort of job that would involve me just being out on the sea all day. And a job came up at Baskinshock Scotland um, in the place that I live, which is Oban on the West Coast. They're an incredible uh, organisation. So predominantly a tourism, a, a tourism organisation. Um, so we mainly take people out in the water with the sharks, but we're also focused on research as well. So I'll talk about this a little bit later on, but the, the Baskin shark, we really, really don't know that much about them at all. Um, so basically mm. what we try and do is while we're taking people in the water with them, we try and collect data if we can. So yeah, so the Baskin shark really came into my life. I sort of vaguely knew they existed, but yeah. like quite a lot of people in the UK, I didn't realise until quite late on in life that we actually have not only sharks in UK waters, but also the second largest species of shark in the world, which is the Baskin shark. And believe it or not, they arrive back to the UK waters every summer and it's a really short season. So it's kind of from around the end of June to pretty much September. So you've got a very, very small window to see them when they kind of arrive oh, wow. around the west coast of Scotland. So as a guide, you can't really train for that. So it's not like they're around all the yeah. time and you can sort of go out and hop in the water with them. So the first time I ever saw a Baskin shark, I had to pretend I'd seen them every single day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just had to completely hide my amazement and you know complete shock that there was actually like a how did you do shock, that a shock there just a professional aren't I Ryan really <laughs> that's it that's it no. you're a professional you remember guests names on podcasts and everything <laughs> <laughs> you think no yeah so like yeah it was it was super awesome but yeah so they kind of really came into my life in about 2018 but I'd always had a love for sharks. Um, I mean, yeah. they're, that, they're just those kinds of species where you're like, especially once you see one under the water, they just kind of really get under your skin and you have to find out more about them. And, you know, there's over 500 species of shark and like over a thousand species of shark and ray in the world. And, yeah. you know, all with different body shapes and, you know, different niches and a crazy, crazy uh, group of animals to look at. And yeah, really, really special. But yeah, yeah, I love them. I could talk about them all day. And you said that the second, that's mad, isn't it? The second biggest, especially as like visitors to the UK. Is it specifically Scotland? Do we find them anywhere else in the UK? Waters? Yeah, so you can find them kind of all around the west coast of the UK, really. So you can find them in Cornwall. Okay. You get them off the west coast of the Isle of Man as well. You get them on the west coast of Ireland. Um, there's been a lot of them there this year. They're all having a party around Cork, apparently. But you, who isn't? Who isn't? Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're kind of like the real hot spots, and then you've got the Sea of the Hebrides, which is where we work, um, and that's also a hot spot mm. for them. So basically, they kind of arrive wherever their food source is. But typically, every summer is when they come back to the surface. So the thing about the Baskin shark is, you know, they they follow the food up to the surface, and then after summer, they go back down deep. And so they've been found kind of like over thousands of meters deep. Oh wow. Yeah, yeah. So they, they hang around in really deep water. And sometimes, you know, there's been very, very recent studies done that have shown sort of where they go after they come to our West Coast. And, and some of them actually stick around the British Isles. They're just 
deeper in the water so we don't actually see them. It's really deep. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That's amazing. So how big are they? We're the second largest. The largest is the whale shark, right? Yeah, yeah. So largest is the whale shark. So the Baskin shark is on average between 8 to 10 metres in length. That's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the the largest on record was 12.2. So they can get pretty, pretty big. Holy <sighs> Yeah, they're massive. That's really big. Yeah. So to give people some sort of I- some 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 sort of idea, the dorsal fin, that's the fin that can go on on the back. That's about one mm. that can be one meter high. So that's like over half my height. Oh my god. They're big beasties. That's exactly half my height. I'm two oh one. So yeah. That's that's about three. That's really big. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, what to to like? I always do this whenever we're talking about big animals. I look at the room I'm in <laughs> <laughs> and look length from length, and then go, "It's definitely longer than that." And then even just doing that, you're like, "Wow." Yeah. That's, you know, I, I it gives just... you some sort of instant comparison inside. Eight to ten meters would be as long as a London bus. Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. They're about, I would say maybe even longer, but they're definitely what you're looking at about 20 foot. Yeah, they can be just about bigger than the boats that we have, yeah. Um, and, and we have. That's incredible. Sides of rope, yeah. Yeah. That is incredible. And what do they, don't they eat like krill? Yeah, so, so that's the thing. So people are obviously, when they hear about like an eight to 10 meter shark, they, they kind of like freak out a little bit. But the thing about the Baskin shark yeah. is that it's not a predator like a great white shark. It doesn't act, like actively seek out other fish. So basically what they feed on are tiny, tiny little microscopic organisms called zooplankton and specifically a type of mm. zooplankton called a copepod, which is like a really minuscule little crustacean. And these animals are about, you know, you're talking one to two millimetres in size. They're really, really tiny. <laughs> Um, so it seems a bit ridiculous, doesn't it? Like the second largest species of shark in the world actually feeds on these tiny little millimetre <laughs> big copepods. But um, yeah, so these these animals, they basically, uh, so you get you get a phytoplankton bloom. So phytoplankton is kind of mm. plants. They're not all plants, but they do the same thing. So they create their energy from the sunlight. So you get them um, at a certain time of year, kind of around late spring. And then mm. you get the zooplankton, which feeds on it. And zooplankton is just like a big generic term for a lot of little animals that you'll find kind of in the in the water column. And so they're they're right at the surface, and you get great big concentrations of them. And so that's why the Baskin sharks come up to the surface because they're just basically following where that food is. So if you think about it, ah, uh, gotcha. If you think about it, because they're so big and they've got to feed as much as I was going to say humanly, but like. As much as sharkly possible um, <laughs> to keep themselves going. They're like absolute feeding machines. So they're filter feeders. Um, so basically what they do is they mm. filter these tiny little organisms out of out from the seawater. Um, so basically they'll swim into a tide or swim into the current and that channels the water into this great big mouth that they have. So they can extend their mouth about three foot wide. Um, and inside the mouth is just, there's, there's, there's no teeth. Um, there's just these big sort of white structures called gill rakers and that basically acts as a giant sieve so all the water gets pushed into the mouth all these little copepods get stuck on this giant sieve and then the excess water gets pushed out of the gills and basically they'll they'll do that um as much as they can so yeah so completely harmless to to humans and if you're nice and still and quiet in the water which is what we teach people to be pretty much don't notice you're there at all they're just so focused on getting as much of that yummy plankton as they as they possibly can and a question i have to ask and i don't know how this is going to sound but i've always (laughs) 
I've oh, always God. wondered this with Baskin Sharks. Well, no, it's the <laughs> I've seen baby sharks before of different species from bonnet heads, um, hammerheads to black tips and things like that. And, and they look very similar, but smaller as babies. Yeah. Baskin Sharks. Yeah. Do they look like they do as an adult, but just teeny? Do they have a circular mouth open all the time, just smaller? Okay, that's a, that's a really, really good question. You've made me really excited. So basically, the Baskin shark, <laughs> we don't actually... So when I say we don't know much about the Baskin shark, I really mean it. So we pretty much know that the Baskin shark comes to the surface mm. to feed. We know what they feed on, and we know kind of basically what their average size is. And we know vaguely where they go after summer, but that's basically all we know. Mm. So that we've never scientifically recorded mating, and we've never scientifically recorded a, a Baskin shark giving birth. So there's only one account of a Baskin shark giving birth, and that is from a Norwegian fisherman, so kind of way back in the 1800s. And he'd harpooned a female and was towing mm. her back to shore, and five live pups swam out of her, basically. So baby sharks are called pups. Wow. And from that one account, we've sort of deduced that the Baskin shark, and, and comparing it to other similar species as well, we've deduced that they have litters of about up to six pups, mm. and that Baskin sharks are, to give it its fancy term, ovoviviparous which basically means that the egg hatches inside the mother and so the young are effectively born live so that's basically all we know and no one's kind of ever seen that so we don't quite know what the baskin shark looks like when it first comes out of the womb but we do know that juvenile (sighs) juvenile baskin sharks this will blow your mind their nose is like really twisted and pointed it's like a little elephant's trunk and it like rounds out over oh my time. God. <laughs> and we don't know what it's for. We don't know what, what it's for. What? Um, yeah, it's mad. Um, so it has a prehensile, not prehensile, because it's not that, but long, a long nose. Yeah, people obviously can't see this. I'm moving my hand around like a little telescope. So yeah, it can't move like an elephant's trunk, but it's like <laughs> twisted and pointed sort of upwards. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah, so in Spanish, they're called squalo, squalo elefante. I'm sorry to anyone from Spain that's listening, but it translates <laughs> as the elephant shark, and, and we think that's why. Um, so we've got a couple of theories why it's like that. So the first is to help it break out of the egg, maybe. Oh, okay. The second theory is to give it sort of a hydrodynamic advantage. So basically, when sharks are born, they're literally out into the world and... You know, they have to be like mm. a fully fledged shark. So the Baskin shark will probably just be feeding straight away. So it's thought that it might help channel water into the mouth so that they can feed a bit easier. But we don't know for certain. Yeah. Oh, this is so interesting because I've, it's something I've always wondered going like you see them full size, like, you know, pictures or videos and you're like, it's quite epic to see. And you just go, I wonder if they look exactly the same, <laughs> just a foot long. Yeah. Yeah, well, for the most part, like sharks actually really do, um, because there is no, mm. there's no basic, there's no parental care really in the shark world. Yeah. Like basically, once the female has, there's a couple of different strategies. So sharks sometimes, some species lay eggs. Some species, like I said, the egg will hatch inside the mother, and then other species a live birth but in all of these instances there is no form of parental care at all so as soon as the shark is born it's just out into the world so it kind of has to be like a little miniature version that's ready to go and ready to take on the world so yeah it's it's so adorable i'd love to see one and i know there's many many marine biologists that feel the same (laughs) more drastic than i do but i would still love to see one yeah (laughs) Yeah, oh, they're I'm pretty imagine. cool. We've we've only seen 
one juvenile when we were out with Baskin Shark Scotland, and it is like honestly the cutest thing I've ever seen with its little oh pointy God, nose. It's just... Yeah, I would, I would absolutely love it. It's, it's such a, they're such amazing creatures. I'm, I'm so mm-hmm. jealous that you get so, <laughs> so close and get to see them. It's what is on my yeah. bucket list to see them. So just brace yourself when I inevitably invite myself oh, somewhere one day. Absolutely, I'm super excited. Yeah, I, ca- I could honestly talk about the Baskin shark all day. I'll just throw in two more facts if I can. Yeah, do it. So the Baskin shark not only. Is it eight to ten meters long and it feeds on something really tiny? But also, if you're going to feed on something that is like millimeters in size and you don't require any complex hunting strategies, you know, why do you need a massive brain? So basically, the Baskin shark saves energy by having a really tiny brain. So the the brain itself is about <laughs> ten centimeters in size. So if anyone, you know, you see all these uh, news stories from the sun where you see those pictures of Baskin sharks and it's like massive sharks around paddle border as if like the as if baskin sharks are like kind of coordinating hunting strategies and you're like they're really really not <laughs> thinking about that much <laughs> like they're just big gentle giants really so i just wanted yeah. to get that in there sounds like you're scientifically slagging them off now <laughs> oh no well speaking of <laughs> speaking of slagging them off scientifically just like listen to their their latin name so the latin name is ceterinus maximus and rhinus means nose and it's because they've got this oh. like They've got this big bulbous nose that, like, it sticks out of the water even when they're feeding. It's that big. And when they hold their mouth open. Yeah. True story. And basically that Latin name translates as, like, the big nose sea monster. And I just think that's really mean. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder they disappear into the deep all the time. They're like, yo, screw you guys. We're only coming up here for food and then we're buggering off again with your insultive Latin names. Did you see that recent scientific paper that came out about them, though? So when they're down deep, we're pretty certain that that's where they're shagging, essentially. So when they go down (laughs) to the deep water... Very lovely put. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Um, So there's a, a group of scientists that basically attached a camera onto six Baskin sharks from the Sea of the Hebrides. And basically, it's the first footage we have of what goes on down deep. So basically, they're like 70... Six? Yeah, six of them. There's like 77 metres deep, and they're all like aggregating down there. And then there's footage of Baskin sharks, and they're like touching fins like this. And they think basically what they do is they like touch fins before they get down to it. So they're essentially like holding hands, which I think is just... Oh, it was. Oh, that's adorable. Yeah, I like lost my mind. I like how you went from. <laughs> I like how you went from the shagging to then they hold hands. <laughs> I wonder where you were going with the touch of fists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, a lot of shark mating is really violent and isn't really that nice for the female shark at all. So I've just completely put my own human values on this, and I'm just like, yep, yeah, they're holding hands. It's super romantic. Yeah. I mean, every nature documentary ever, so don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm so excited to see the nature documentary of Baskin sharks and the, the like really romantic slow music in the background as they're just swimming along yeah. with their fins touching. Just walking down a marketplace 77, foot, 77 metres deep, just buying yeah. fruit and veg together, holding fins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, but yeah, um, I'm in danger of like using up all your podcast time for sharks and I could totally do it, so... <laughs> Please feel free to stop me. (laughs) Well, okay. with that very wonderful segue, let's go straight on to our next topic then. Okay. Because this episode is very much split into two. We're Baskin Sharks and our next topic. So 
you you said at the beginning you studied something that I think is unique. Definitely not. I, I understand there are people that study this, but it's still a unique <laughs> thing in regards to it's not discussed as much as other studied topics potentially. Yeah. But I also think it's rather important, and that's conservation conflicts. Mm-hmm. So I guess the best place to start with this is: can you tell us? what this means and what it involves yeah i can so you are right in that there's lots of people studying it but it's not discussed that much because a it's very conceptual and b Mm. it's kind of not as easy to communicate as say like a fact about an animal for example and it's like very we're talking about humans right so essentially Mm. a lot of people might be familiar with the term human wildlife conflict and that's kind of used Mm. a lot what I study is very different. So human-wildlife conflict is sort of used to describe situations where humans and wildlife interact with one another, and it's typically a very negative interaction, whereas conservation conflict is very much about human-human interaction and very much like the Mm. human side of conservation. So sometimes the two terms get blurred. So sometimes the term human-wildlife conflict is used to describe conservation conflicts. But the kind of main take-home message is that a conservation conflict is typically a kind of clash of interests between, so where one interest is conservation and the other interest is something else that maybe kind of opposes conservation's values. So, you know, things like agriculture or fisheries or hunting And, you know, we find them all over the world for all different manners of situations, basically. And often the wildlife is kind of caught in the middle of that. So it's very, very much a focus on human interaction and sort of human behaviour. And if you think about it, conflicts are probably one of the most human things that we have. So it's like completely in our nature to disagree about different things and have different opinions about different things. Um, Uh But conservation conflicts a lot of the time they're mistaken for just this kind of disagreement over the objectives of conservation or land use or how to manage a species, where in actual fact, what I study is kind of like more complex than that. So the easiest way that I can describe it is to kind of like imagine an iceberg and the little part of the iceberg that Mm. you can see on the surface, that's kind of like the surface dispute between, you know, these two interest groups. And that's the stuff that we hear about all the time. That's the stuff that's very visible. It's sort of like easy for people to talk about. Whereas in Mm. actual fact, a lot of the time, the stuff that's like underneath the surface, the majority of this conflict is these more deeper rooted elements that I study. So that's where you get kind of like clashing cultures. That's where you get politics. That's where you get, you know, entrenched views and values and you know things that are more to do with social science and political science than they are to do with ecology and economics and this is kind of like the messy side of human nature essentially so as as human beings we don't typically react to things in ways that are rational we act on emotion we act on history we act on culture and that's often what a lot of these conflicts are about but that stuff is much, much harder to see and it's much, much harder to navigate because it's below the surface and you've kind of really got to tease it out of these situations. So uh, long story short, that's basically kind of where my work is, is trying to understand the deeper roots of these conflicts. And if I can be particularly nerdy and sort of talk about uh, my favourite... You're in the right place yeah. for it. <laughs> uh, my favourite scientific model. So... Uh, 
essentially like I did my PhD and I started out with my ecologist hat on and I came at it from a very sort of surface level angle. So basically I wanted to understand Mm. attitudes towards species. And then the more that I got into it, the more I sort of fell into the fields of international relations and politics and peace studies. And believe it or not, you can draw similarities between you know, the conflicts that are going on in Syria and conflicts between farmers and lynx. You know, a lot of the human elements are very, very much yeah. the same. And one of my favourite models is the model of conflict escalation by a guy called Frederick Glassell, who's like a, a big name in peace research, essentially. And the reason it's my favourite model is because it kind of, it shows conflict in stages and it shows it escalating over time. But rather than go up, the model goes down. So it's kind of like the last stage is called you going down into the abyss together. So Interesting. <laughs> so it basically goes from stage one, which is like, you know, the initial dispute about something that can be quite easily resolved, right down to this stage nine, which is where you've completely forgotten about that dispute in the first place. And now all we want to do is like take each other down. And there's lots of stages in between. But the in- we call that Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're joking, but but yeah, like there's one there's, <laughs> yeah. there's there's one stage where you start to form coalitions with like-minded people and you start to form lobbyist groups. So that's about mm-hmm. stage four or five. And this is where it begins to become more about identity and who the person is rather than kind of yeah. what the initial subject was. Um, and so basically that is that is what I'm interested in, is kind of what is causing this conflict to escalate and why has it got to the stage that it has? So yeah, sorry, that was a really long-winded answer to your question of no, what it's, is no, no, conflict. Well, no, it's, it, because it's such an it's such a complex question, I guess, or, and a topic to explain. Yeah. Do you think conservation conflicts are one of the main reasons the main thing that slows down conservation? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um so you know, we've we've all said that people are the root problem of conservation, um, but not, mm. you know, I don't mean that in the sense of like, you know, it obviously human activity is causing climate change. But, you know, why are we at the stage that we are now, for example, where we know that climate mm. change is on our doorstep? We know that biodiversity is in trouble. Everybody knows this. But why are we at the stage where we're still not doing anything about it? And that is because of these very sort of human aspects of the human nature and this the kind of social and political and systemic causes within our society uh, so that's things like power imbalances that's things like governance which is the kind of like the rules and the norms that sort of organize society you know all of these yeah. things throw a spanner in the works basically and slow everything down and the worst thing about conflicts is that you know, it's it's completely normal to have disputes. It's completely normal to have disagreements. And you know, as we all, if we've if anyone's got a partner or anyone's you know in a in some sort of relationship, <laughs> it's the same sort of principle, right? So, if you've got a healthy relationship and you've got a, a good sort of environment to move past those disputes, then you're going to deal with them in quite an efficient manner, and you're going to move on with your life. What often happens with conservation conflicts, because we're not actually tackling that social and political environment, basically people get stuck on these disputes, get stuck on these disagreements and can't move past them. And it puts a huge barrier in the way of progressing in conservation and actually, you know, tackling big things like the biodiversity crisis and climate change, because people are sort of stuck on other things that they're kind of a bit more unwilling to talk about or that we're not equipped yeah. to deal with. So yeah, you're you you're absolutely right. Um in that it is one of the biggest problems 
facing conservation today. And there was a paper that came out in 2020. I'll, I'll send you a link to it if you want to put it in your show notes or whatever. But um, yes, absolutely. It mentioned that, you know, the biggest cause of failure in conservation projects are social failures. So, you know, it is very much that human to human element that is slowing us down. And for the UK, I I don't even know if you'll have an answer to this, but what what would you say the biggest conflicts are or what do we see in the UK? What do we see in the UK? So probably the biggest one that people will be familiar with is likely driven grouse shooting versus... Well, it's it's kind of like driven grouse shooting versus the the world at the moment, um, but it kind of <laughs> yes. it kind of predominantly started with birds of prey, raptor mm. persecution. So that's quite a big one. In actual fact, a lot of the conflicts that we have are focused around the uplands because you know the management of the uplands for the sport of driven grouse shooting is quite is still quite a big form of land use, especially up in Scotland where I work, but also down in England, parts of England as well. And there are quite a lot of conflicts associated with that form of land management. Yeah. You say what are the biggest conflicts? I kind of see them as the ones that have been around for the longest time and the ones that have escalated to such a big, big point. So we've got that at the moment. You've got lots of different conflicts in the marine world. So one of the biggest ones is kind of like scallop dredging or mechanical kelp dredging. That's a conflict. Mm. You've got conflicts between, you know, wind farms and conservation. That's another thing, even renewable energy and conservation interest that is a really tricky complicated one and then we've Mm -hmm. also got conflicts with species that haven't even arrived yet um so one of the ones people will be very familiar with is the lynx the reintroduction of the eurasian lynx that is already causing conflicts before it's even happened so that's predominantly with you know the land management community and agriculture as well so yeah so there there are a lot and it always boggles my mind because we associate big conflicts with sort of big charismatic species. So you get lots of them in Africa, for example, because they have species like the lion, they have species like elephant who are sort of like right in their back garden. Whereas in the UK, we've kind of got rid of all of our large predators. So it's it kind of like boggles my mind that there are still really super entrenched conflicts here. But then again, I hear myself say that and I'm like, yes, but you know, you study the reasons why they become entrenched and it's got nothing to do with the species at all. So it's kind of very much to do with competing interests and kind of those deeper rooted social and political issues that I was talking about earlier. Um, but yeah, there, there's there's a lot. You can pretty much you could pretty much name a species or a land use, and there'll there'll be a conflict around it. That's what I mean because I, especially with the lynx thing, I guess mm-hmm. with any reintroduction, really, is it just because British people love a panic? <laughs> We're a bit, like, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I'm not. It's not specifically British or you know anyone yeah. from the UK, but there is that very much like. But wait a minute, I have a problem with this, yeah, and it's like, yeah. do you do you even know what a lynx looks like? Like, yeah, well, that's. <laughs> I don't want to simplify it. <laughs> yeah, but you but you are right in a sense in that you know, like I said, it's it's complete human nature to have different opinions and also sort of disagree with something you don't know that much about. Um, But it's also, you know, I try and get people to see it as kind of like a different power dynamic in a way. So I I work 
with land managers and I work with fishermen and I work with gamekeepers, you know, I've worked with a variety of different people in sort of rural livelihoods. And a lot of the time, it's not actually the species itself that's the problem. It's actually what it symbolises. So it symbolises like a threat to their livelihood. And it also symbolises those rural lives and livelihoods starting to be driven out and you know conservation Mm. and and greener lifestyles kind of moving in and so quite often the resistance that you find is the result of this kind of more fear than anything else of what that will mean for them and what that means for their livelihood and also their power and agency in relation to other people so kind of when you understand it like that it seems very very starkly human in a way is to Mm. react in that way um, and reasonable, I guess, in some way. Reasonable, yes. But but like you said, sometimes it can be a bit of a sort of like abject panic. So a very like yeah. knee-jerk reaction without actually being kind of open to the idea or want to find things out. But then there are also things we can do to combat that as well. So I'm also, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I'm also a trustee with Scotland The Big Picture, who are a fantastic rewilding charity up here in Scotland you know we're currently doing a lot of work doing a lot of groundwork with land managers and with local communities to understand a their concerns about these species that might be reintroduced or species that are even here currently and you know not sort of poo-poo those concerns you know actually really listen to them and and try and work to address them and then also you know spread education and awareness about you know what these animals will actually behave like and what their ecology is in a way that's kind of involving them in the process so so yeah there's there's lots of things we can do and I know we're going to talk about this more towards the end but if there's any sort of take-home message that I can give about conflicts is that it's not so much about the outcome it's about the process so you know who is involved in the project who has a say in the decision making? You know, is it fair? Is it equal? You know, who is creating the knowledge and who is sharing it? Because that really, really matters. So quite often I hear a lot of frustration from, you know, the conservation side because they'll kind of say things like, we have the science, but they they still won't do this. And you kind of like, yeah, but think about who produced that science. You know, do they trust them? Mm-hmm. You know, also they have their own way of building knowledge. You know, has that been factored in? Were they part of the research project? You know, so there's a, there's a lot of things that we can do process wise to make that transition a bit easier. But also at the end of the day, you are always going to have people who disagree and that's just natural. But it's how we move past those disagreements and whether we can move past them in a more efficient way to actually make progress, you know, rather than get stuck on them all the time. That was interesting what you said a minute ago about like the process and the outcome, because I guess really the process can sometimes decide the outcome for a lot of it. Would that be right? That's it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, you've got to ask yourself, like, what is, what is the overall goal then in that case? Is it, is it having everybody on board mm. and sort of working in a way that actually creates progress? Or is it literally just doing the kind of biggest thing you possibly can do? And sort of getting rid of a land use or or banning something, you know, and in some cases we really do need that, don't get me wrong. But a lot of times, you know, maybe the outcome should be something slightly different or maybe the process is is what decides the outcome, like you just said. So, you know, what is Mm. what is everybody going to be on board with? And and you can't do that. I I see it a lot in, in conflict management where the conflict's been allowed to get to a certain place. And then like the government freaks out and is like, okay, we're going to fund like five workshops for you guys to reach consensus or something. And you're like, it's, 
it's it's a it's a, like a long term thing. Like as as long as the links is going to be about, you're going to need conflict management because they're going to keep cropping up time and time again. And if you've got a good system in place that you can, you know, that's what I meant about trying to see conflicts as something that are going to happen and having the processes in place to deal with them. That's something we don't have in the UK. We do like palliative care, basically, where we do things after it's happened. And already at that point, people don't want to talk to each other. And, you know, then yeah. you've got more groundwork to do. So that's what happens in the Grousemere situation is that it's already got to a point where it's so bad that, you know, people laugh at me. So in, in talks and stuff, in lectures that I give, I put up that model and... I get people to sit, tell me what kind of stage they think the Grousemere conflict is at. And obviously at the beginning, they put it like in the first couple yeah. of stages. And then like I say, well, I actually think it's here. And like I point to stage seven, which is like you're already getting into, you know, like the conflicts in Afghanistan. That's basically where that is. And then I spend the whole talk sort of explaining why it's there. And then towards the end, people are like, oh, actually, yeah, I can see that because there's violence involved now. You know, there's there's serious lobbying. There's like people. That, there are people right. that are there for good causes, but there's also people who are literally just there now to take down the other side and will not stop unless that other side is taken down. And I do understand mm. it to a certain extent, but at the same time, I'm like, well, you know, we may as well try and work with them while they're here. Uh, so for my PhD, my PhD was on the uh, grouse shooting conflict in Scotland. For a lot of it, um, I spent a lot of time doing in-depth interviews with gamekeepers, with land managers, with raptor conservationists, um, you know, all kinds of different people involved in the conflict. And, you know, typically you might imagine that there's two very distinct groups of people, right? So you've got yeah. people in favour of grouse shooting and you've got people in favour of conservation. In actual fact, it wasn't like that at all. So I actually found there were three different types of people and mm. they, they kind of related to how they responded to the conflict. So the first two groups I call like the fight or flight response. Um, so the fight nice. response is, thank you, I did enjoy that. Um, the fight <laughs> response, um, this is what you typically see in conflicts, right? Is the very antagonistic people. It's the people who have very fiery opinions on social media and they're sort of going at each other's throats and, you know, think feel very, very much like they have to fight their corner. And then on the other side, you had the flight response, which was these very, this very sort of despondent group of people that you almost never hear from because they don't engage with the conflict because they're kind of like, what's the point? I'm not going to be listened to. And I would just like to make the point here that these aren't, this, this isn't a group just for gamekeepers or for raptor conservationists. This is like across the board, these different types yeah. of responses. And the reasons for them was was very, very similar. So in both cases, people felt that they that power wasn't equally distributed. So they often felt that they were on the back foot, but had very different reactions to it. So they either felt like they had to fight, so they had to gain that power back, kind of like an animal mm. that's been pushed into a corner, or they felt that they were powerless and they weren't going to put themselves in that situation where they, they were vulnerable, essentially. Another element to it was like levels of trust. So in both situations, both these camps had very, very low le levels of trust in not only each other, but also in the process. So that was in the people who right. were in charge of uh, in charge of the policies and who the de decision makers and the policy makers, but also people who were there to represent them. And that was the other mm. element to it was was feeling very underrepresented or misrepresented. And that was a huge element in this conflict. In that, a lot of people on the ground actually felt that the people who were speaking for them. At a national level, so that's the NGOs, that's the 
shooting organisations, that's Scottish government basically, were not mm. representing their interests in the best possible way. And a lot of them actually felt... Even if they were on the same side. Even if they're on the same side. Si- yeah, even if they're on the same side. So that gives wow. you the... That gives you the feeling of, I feel voiceless, I feel powerless, and I'm either angry or I'm very frustrated by this. And so basically what people did was they either disengaged or they kind of went the opposite way and and kind of fought their corner. And then you had this third type of person who was very rare to find, but they were sort of a bit more middle ground here. So they were quite accepting of their role within the conflict. They were kind of more willing to compromise and they were more willing to be involved in constructive discussions. And you can probably guess what the elements were that allowed this to happen. They felt power was equally distributed. They had good levels of trust, good relationships. And they also felt well represented by the people who were there to represent them. So so what that basically means is there's a fault within the system. So there's a fault within how these conflicts are dealt with and there's also a fault within Mm. how it's governed, which, again, governance isn't government, but it's kind of like the institutions and the rules that organise our society. And a big element of that is who is involved in the decision-making process and how these decisions are implemented. Um, And you can see it, the Raptor the raptor example the raptor grouse example is a really really fantastic example of that because you can look past you can look at the history of the conflict and see all these processes that have caused these sort of fractures to appear and to get wider mm-hmm. between the two sides so yeah so it's 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 a really interesting one and i mean i'm i'm not saying for a second that uh, one of the big misconceptions about conflict research is that we're saying everyone should be friends and we should hold hands and we should completely <laughs> ignore that um, you know persecution happens and wildlife crime happens. That's not what we're saying at all. But what we're saying is, is that the persecution and the wildlife crime, that's a separate issue. So that is something that should be dealt with from a higher level. So there should be stronger regulations and there should be law enforcement yeah. around that. But mm. what I am saying is that the reasons I've just described there, so the sort of power imbalances and the lack of trust and the lack of representation and, you know, all of those deeper rooted issues, all that messy human side, that is what we're seeing time and time again in conflicts all around the world. So it doesn't matter if it's to do with seals or raptors or lions or, you know, animals that aren't even here yet or it's in the marine sphere these are all the things that are kind of causing these conflicts to escalate and cause them to get to get to a point uh, that it's very very hard to come back from um, and so that's kind of why we need to focus on the process so um sort of like imagine imagine it like a little plant so basically you need the right environment for that plant to flourish and that plant to grow and it's like the same thing with these relationships and conservation like you need the right social and political environment for I, I don't know what I would call it, like the the peace tree, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> <laughs> to, to like flourish and grow, to kind of move past these conflicts, basically. Um, and yeah, yeah. also kind of not really see them as a negative thing, like conflicts. It's healthy to argue in relationships because that's how you figure out what the problems are and that's how yeah, you can totally. move past them. Um, yeah. Same thing here. You just need to ensure that you've got a strong enough foundation to move past these arguments in a way that is constructive rather than destructive. So it's a, it kind of all comes down to the process. And that is something that we're, the, we're really lacking in the UK in general, is that we treat conflicts in a very palliative way. So we kind of wait until they've happened and then 
kind of panic a little <laughs> <Yes>. bit. <laughs> and then we're like, okay, well, we, we've got to have some sort of, you know, often a quite a quick fix or like a technical solution, for example, or some sort of legislature or, you know, oftentimes, you know, a couple of workshops to try and reach consensus. Whereas, you know, we're, we're going to need conflict management for the entire time that that species is there or that, that, that land management yeah. exists because the conflict keeps rearing its head, you know, because someone's upset someone else across the fence or, yeah, you know, you just need a system that's going to deal with it much better. And you can apply that not only to conservation, but you can apply that to issues like climate change. You can also apply that to, um, you know, other global problems as well. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a really, a really very complex uh, big issue that we've got. My penultimate question, you're mm-hmm. going to hate me for asking this. <laughs> okay. Do you think, I mean, I, I can't ask this as a, as a blanket term because there's too many conflicts, but let's, let's pick the gamekeeper, raptor persecution. Mm-hmm. To that, do you think bridges will ever be crossed between both sides? Do you think it will move forward? Oh, Ryan, how could you ask me this question? <laughs> I knew it. Um, is it possible to build bridges? Um, I mean, I have to remain optimistic. I think absolutely. And I think it has Mm. to. Um, So just simply because of the fact that a lot of grouse smears are sitting on top of enormous carbon stores. And so in the form of peat, everyone's seen the IPCC report, you know, those Mm -hmm. habitats are going to become increasingly important. So um, I like to think that we can build bridges. I think particularly with the grouse management debate it's going to be extremely difficult because things have become so entrenched i mean i finished my phd in 2018 so much has happened since then um yeah, so much has caused it to escalate even further people are so divided social media hasn't really helped i think really what you've got to do is we talk a lot in conservation about top down and bottom up processes so top down is really when stuff comes from a higher level so when stuff comes from the government and is enforced and you, we talk about bottom up and in conservation, we kind of use bottom up, which is working within the community and really building things from the ground up. Um, we talk about that as sort of like the golden strategy, really. And it is really, really mm. super successful. Um, but I think you need a mixture of the two in, in this kind of situation and something in between as well. So you need the law enforcement, you need that regulation to come down from the top to solve these kind of very worrying issues and the fact that a lot of driven grouse shooting especially currently is 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 still unregulated and I, I do think it needs to be um from a conflict perspective as well that just helps with sort of even in that power relationship out right yeah and building that trust i guess in the in the process of, of the yeah. event or task yeah but again you also need to match that with sort of working with the individual estates and there's so yeah. much there's so much nuance on the ground as well so not every estate is the same so you really need to recognize that and sort of work within the local communities and work with the people who are actually on the ground as well to sort of really build these kind of more sustainable strategies in these more sustainable approaches right from the bottom up and what that does is it involves these people in the process and so you know they have an opportunity to do something they also have an opportunity to provide direct feedback and there needs to be as well there needs to be like linkages in between these two levels too so you can't just have them separately and doing their own thing you've got to have people in the middle so bridging organizations basically um who will help people at the local level to give feedback to those higher up and people higher up to give feedback to people at at the bottom level and it just basically needs to be better 
communication and um, a better governance process, really. All of this stuff, I'm, I'm like, oh, this just needs to happen. Hugely complex. <laughs> yes. <laughs> requires yeah, funding, just get requ- it done. Yeah, requires funding, requires resources, requires personnel. And, you know, with all of these conflicts, basically, like, we are running out of time to do that. So it's kind of something we really kind of have to do on the job. But yeah, in answer, in answer to your question, I do think bridges can be built um, I do think that just because of the history of the conflict and because there are still crimes being committed as well, I do think it's going to take us until those crimes are resolved and until we have regulation. I think it's going to be very, very hard to mm. actually begin that process where we sort of begin to rebuild these relationships and figure out something that can work for the future, um, unfortunately. Uh, but, but yeah, it's long story short it's it's going to be a long road and it's certainly a very a very complicated one my last question for you on this episode is and you may have even given a bit of insight into what your answer might be but if you could pass on one bit of advice onto everyone <laughs> on the planet regarding the natural world quite simply isla what would you what would you say so i've got a fun one <laughs> sorry i've got two i've got a fun one um <laughs> and i've also got a slightly more serious one so like the fun one is obviously linking right back to what we were talking about at the beginning um mm. you know stay curious like don't lose that passion and don't you know if you if you want wondering about something then go and find out about it because that's how we get people interested in conservation and nature and, and we all kind of need to be big kids in a way and have that sort of childlike joy and curiosity for the natural world and that's how we're going to encourage people to protect it really is to show how weird and wonderful it is and what we what we stand to lose um and then kind of the second one is is a bit related to the stuff that we were talking about just now um which is don't forget the human side of all of this so it's very very easy to focus on the, the the ecological aspects but we also need to remember that we are human beings at the end of the day and we are hugely yeah. complex and a lot of our conservation problems our big conservation problems come from fractures in the kind of social and political environment so you know we really really need to focus on them so you'll hear the phrase go around a lot there can be no climate justice without social justice um it's a yeah. sim- similar sort of principle um so yeah so everything's all tied in together but yeah, sorry, I uh, I cheated and I picked two. <laughs> I like I like them both. I like I like that phrase and I like the kind of remember things are human and we're well, we're human in all of this. Yeah, and it's, I think that you know, if you remember that side, maybe there wouldn't be as much division. Yeah, time. yeah, hopefully. But I think that um I think that kind of really shows that I lead a double life basically. So I've got like the fun. <laughs> Ooh, a sharks aside, and then I've also got the kind of very serious. Um, I'm gonna come and try and manage these conflicts type side. But you could make them both fun. You could say like, you know, care about animals, go see basking sharks, and remember, don't be a prick. Like, you know, that's basically <laughs> if we're summing up. <laughs> don't be a prick. What was it you said before? Oh, don't dick around. Was that it? You wanted to put? Oh that yeah, get on, on with it, lads, and stop dicking around. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that was a chat pre-record <laughs> I said to Isla about a bit of insight for the listeners there. Yeah, we don't have time to bicker, basically, is, is what I'm saying. We don't, There's too much on, there's too much. There Leave is. Leave your bickering for watching the TV and fighting <laughs> over the channels, like the planet needs us. Um, Isla, thank you so much for joining me on this really fascinating episode That's it's so nice to talk about this kind of different topic. And we started with something very fun about basking sharks, so yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's yeah. been a win-win. 
Um, but thank you so much. No, um, thank you so much for having me on. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And thanks for indulging my two different worlds, basically. <laughs> no problem at all. And all the best with uh, your new... What was your, the name of your podcast again for... A podcast is called The Whole Tooth. Um, and it's... The Whole Tooth. Oh, I like it. With the Save Our Seas Foundation, yeah. Amazing. And that will be in a link in the write-up of this episode if you're listening now. Um, Isla, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Um, and we'll keep in touch and I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the projects and work Isla is working on, then you can do so on social media. Her social media tags are in the write-up of this episode. And you can also get in touch with me at intothewildpod at gmail.com or on social media at intothewildpod on Twitter and intothewildpodcast on Instagram. Whether you just want to say hello or share some thoughts on an episode or even let me know what you want to hear about next. A reminder that any views or opinions expressed in today's show belong to the person who said them and do not represent Into the Wild or anyone that we have worked with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild aims to always be a free show, however running and producing it is not free. If you'd like to support us by saying thanks and you can do so by buying me a coffee, our Kofi link is in the write-up of this episode. But until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.